Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Hansi Freinecht, a political philosopher, historian, and sociologist. He's the author of The Listening Society and Nordic Ideology. He spends much of his time alone in the Swiss Alps. He operates the very interesting website, Meta Moderna. And as usual, we'll have pointers to the website and the books on our episode page at jimrutshow.com. Hansi was on the show in January, where we discussed his book, The Listening Society. Today, we're going to mostly focus on his second book, Nordic Ideology. I actually started reading Nordic Ideology first, and I figured, hey, I'm a reasonably smart fellow. I can interpolate from context what I need from the first book, The Listening Society. Well, it turned out I was wrong. By the time I got to about the 45% mark, according to my Kindle in Nordic, I realized I really need to go back and read the listening. So I did. So that's what I'd suggest. If you find this book really interesting, I'd suggest make the effort and read Listening Society first, then Nordic Audiology. Nonetheless, in the spirit of getting listeners up to speed, I'm going to ask Hansi to go into a couple of the key concepts from the first book, The Listening Society, before we jump into Nordic Ideology. And the core of the first book is an idea that Hansi calls the effective value meme. It's essentially a four-dimensional space of thinking about human adult development. So Hansi, why don't you tell the audience about the effective value meme in, in some level of detail? Take a few minutes. Well, thank you first uh, for welcoming back uh, me back to the show. I'd like to say then about effective value meme that a lot of people are, are familiar with something quite similar, uh, namely um, value memes from the spiral dynamics uh, thinking. And it's just not just in the spiral dynamics uh, framework, it's all over develop, adult development psychology, really, that people have noticed. And it's not just actually in adult development psychology, it's also in anthropology, those anthropologists that still or again, start believing in the stage development and the evolution of stages of societies, they notice that there is a pattern here. They notice that um, people uh, in smaller societies and, and uh, farther back in history tend to believe more in magic and, and uh, rituals and rites, for instance, and spirits. And things go on from there to um, larger and larger uh, core principles or universal stories or narratives and uh, uh, perhaps gods or perhaps uh, one god over all gods, which, um, uh, which unify many people, many perspectives and so on and find one higher truth, a truth higher than any person. And then people go on from there uh, to noticing that, hey, there are many visions of this one god. There are many visions of objective reality. So... Um, uh, and, and then in modern society, even that objective reality seems to break down under the weight of so many per perspectives and people start to wander into what's called postmodern uh, perspectives and ideas. And uh, so, so these things align, anthropology, history, 
psychology and personality they they align around some kind of stages which are recognizable and even in any society then people uh, aren't just of one stage that uh, that correspond to that kind of society rather you can see on the one hand that people have learned a certain code or demeanor or worldview from the society that we have uh, that we've been brought up in but at the same time uh, we also develop differently uh, as human beings as persons uh, some people never really grasp the society and the narratives we're in or have uh, and go back to ways of grasping the world that which would have resonated more with earlier societies others go on and uh, pick up more conventional views and some uh, even start to experiment with post-conventional views which may intuit perhaps societies of the future or uh, or future forms of human life and and uh, and life philosophies so an example would be that um, in late medieval times there were some intuitions of uh, of the renaissance and modernity for instance roger bacon this monk was before his time in i believe the it may have been the late 13th century and he uh, he intuited that we will study nature and we and there will be wagons that roll without without horses and there will be machines flying in the air and, and boats made of metal tra traversing the sea um, with no sails and so on. And he, he didn't really know about any of the technology or couldn't guess on it, but he was before his time, he was thinking already according to a, well, according to what? And there it is, a value meme, which corresponded to a society after his own. He, he was before his time in that in that developmental sense. So in any population, let's say you're in Switzerland, uh, you're going to have some kind of uh, normal distribution. It's not exactly a normal distribution, but uh, but something along those lines with some people having simpler worldviews and, and, um, and effective value means that come before that would have resonated with earlier societies, a large bulk of people who resonate with what's conventionally Swiss in the 2020s, for instance, and then a minority of people who already are hooked on to some kind of cultural resonance, which perhaps is more of what is going to emerge or emerging already. And I call these then effective value meme because uh, the, the theory here I'm commenting upon is called uh, spiral dynamics, and it has these color codes for these different value memes. So you can have traditional values, you can have modern values, you can have postmodern values. The traditional values would be more authoritarian, and you believe in maybe one, one God, one truth, one religion. Modern values would be perhaps more achiever oriented and uh, have to do with uh, business and democracy and uh, well a materialist reductionist worldview for instance and postmodern values would be well, seeing uh, the world more relationally and uh, uh, having more egalitarian views and uh, wanting to soften the hard and harsh sides and uh, and destructive sides of modern life and society so 
the the problem I noticed with this developmental view was that people seem to fit in some ways within these categories and in others they didn't. So see, some people were complex thinkers and uh, uh, but maybe uh, spiritually relatively relatively flat. Some people have profound emotional and um, spiritual depths, but they're not necessarily super smart. Some people are very learned in terms of all the progressive ideas out there, but understand them in flattened ways. Um, so so they have, they're reduced to cliches and so on. So there appear to be at least four, four dimensions then that put together is not a necessarily a value meme that is recognizable as such. But if you put them together, there is still a pattern that is vaguely recognizable. And that's why I call them effective value meme. In effect, this person will reproduce the values of modern society. Why? Well, because they are at a certain, you mentioned four four dimensions, they are at a certain level of complexity in terms of their thinking. They have a certain worldview, which they have imbued from our surroundings. Uh, they have a certain um, certain level of introspective individuation or individuation as a human being, uh, knowing their own emotions and so on, and uh, defining their own self and their own life philosophy. And they may have a certain level of uh, subjective states or, or happiness, which facilitate this kind of life and participation in this these kinds of values. I mean, if you feel really bad about yourself all the time, it's just difficult to be a good achiever Democrat, for instance, or have the patience to believe in, in a scientific worldview. If things get too rocky, maybe a magical worldview with quick fixes will be more tempting, for instance. So these put together, I'm saying that yes, Spiral dynamics, and yes, uh, developmental psychologists and anthropologists, you are onto something. We should just pick these dimensions apart and put them back together. And this has certain, uh, I mean, it makes uh, a few things a lot easier. Like the conventional um, spiral dynamics or developmental psychologists, which look at this uh, one dimensionally. They run into problems whenever they look at people, compare people from two different societies. So let's say you have a medieval genius and you have a um, contemporary 14-year-old from, I don't know, Mexico or whatever average country of the world today. And um, the, the medieval genius, let's say it's Thomas of Aquinas uh, in his adult life. Um, so... If you compare the 14-year-old Mexican of today, well, they were taught physics in school, right? So they have a more advanced worldview, and they understand the nature of reality better than uh, the most complex mind of a generation of a whole continent, which, I mean, somehow we know this doesn't make sense. Uh, So we will just say that the kid has acquired a more advanced code because they were brought up in in a larger uh, society uh, with, with, with a more complex code. But Thomas of Aquinas is more capable of uh, making um, an independent uh, thought pattern or idea, and he will bring more emotional depth to his search for the truth. 
So, so in the end, maybe you can say that uh, Thomas of Aquinas has higher effective value mean than the 14-year-old. Or maybe just different in the four-dimensional space, right? To put your labels on it, first dimension you called hierarchical complexity and you had 15 levels, which seemed reasonable enough, going all the way back to the simplest organism. I think level one would have been a bacteria approximately. And then your second, which you called code, which is essentially culture that was downloaded to you. I love the example that, hey, the 14-year-old kid in Mexico City knows quite a bit more about physics than Thomas Aquinas did. But on average, Thomas Aquinas is going to have a much higher hierarchical complexity in his thinking. You know, state being the emotional set point that you're normally at is dimension three, again, as I understood it. And then the fourth, which was to me a little less clear, you called depth, I believe. And depth I took to mean the range of states one had had during one's life, approximately. Is that a reasonable way to describe the four dimensions? It is. I mean, qualifying the fir- fourth one, uh, depth, then uh, the, the range of... Well, so, so first of all, states aren't, uh, aren't necessarily reducible to emotions. Emotions uh, uh, tend to have a directionality or, and they tend to have a target thing and they tend to be, be an impetus or drive for, for action or agency. They're, uh, in a way, the subjective side of the fuel of, of motivation or agency. Like you, you get angry and then your body prepares to move something out of your way, uh, violently if you have to, for instance. Um, and uh, if you can't do that, then you feel really sad about that. And then uh, you go into, a, uh, your body wants to protect itself, for instance. But states are just the, the, the sense of being alive, uh, of just existing. And uh, we've all noticed, hopefully by now, that just being alive feels differently from time to time. And sometimes feel, feeling alive has this uh, profound sense of directness and openness and crispness to it. And th- those are high states when we're in heaven in some sense, which is not the same as just being happy. Uh, we can even be sad in heaven if our heart opens up and flows and it's like a river and uh, th- everyone is forgiven and, uh, and things are brought back into harmony through this deep sorrow, for instance. So that would be a high state with that, with, uh, with that sad emotion. But on the other hand, on the other side of the states, there, there are like, if you get stuck, I don't know, in a, in a bad dream where you wake up at night and, and things just don't make sense and the reality doesn't seem to fit together and, uh, and um, there's a profound terror or darkness or on a bad psychedelic trip, for instance, a lot of, a lot of people these days have these experiences. Uh, they can feel stuck in an internal, eternal loop. So it's worse than death that because you fall out into a space of nothingness, which is just pure terror, for instance. Those are really, really low states. Um, and when, when you... Uh, uh, then encounter, going from the states to the depth, when you encounter spiritual partic- practitioners, well, you can notice things about them. They will, when they say stuff about their uh, purpose in life, it, it'll be uh, something more universal and, 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 and spiritual and, and something more embodied and felt. And when, uh, when you look them in the eyes, they will be te- it'll be like they have like the, these deeper tunnels of their eyes uh, inside them uh, and, and if you look at their movements they tend to be a little bit softer at least when they when they approach certain states that that have to do with their depth 
And this comes from, from hard contemplative work, which generally speaking means integrating those uh, states. So those states can put you, those states can put you like put your whole system or, or nervous system in a certain state. Yes. But to go from there to remember that state, to make it a part of who you are as a person, to make it into a trait, that's the depth part. That's uh, you remember that, oh, life really is a kind of potential heaven, right? Life really is a potential hell. And if you sense those things um, on a very real and visceral level uh, and you remember them and those are recurring drives in your life, then you take life both much more seriously on the dark side and you take life much more uh, as as a cosmic joke on the light side. Um and and that's kind of depth. Uh, it's uh, not, well, the, the, it's a half a theory. I'll admit it, uh, but it's there's something there. And what I find is that these deep people, they align spontaneously with the progressive uh, ideas, ideas about complexity, ideas about uh, uh, non-judgmental hierarchical development, ideas about. Uh, crossing different paradigms and 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 uh, multicultural perspectives from from civilizations ideas of creating a profound a more profound existential peace at the heart of uh, what it means to be human in our in our society and so on all of these ideas would, which i or uh, which i feel pertain to the later stages the the the, the kind of civilization that is only being born now, they seem to correlate with people having high depth. Now, the problem is, as we discussed last time, the high depth people, if they're not also complex thinkers and have good code, they tend to fall into magical thinking. Um, and that's, uh, uh, that's another story. So all of these developmental uh, qualities, they come with risks. And they come with downsides. So if you're really, really complex thinker, but you're not very deep, you tend to be crude or reductionist. But if you're really, really deep, but you're not so complex, you fall into, I don't know, Eckhart Tolle stuff. Um, and Eckhart Tolle, is, he has high states, he has great depth. But if you open his books and read his theories about humanity and reality or or listen to his commentary on, on what's going on in the world, it's, it's gobbledygook. Yep, we see that a lot, unfortunately. Thank you for that good review, and particularly for elucidating depth well. Help me understand it a little bit better. I must say, since I read the book, and also particularly since we had our conversation, I have actually been using this four-dimensional model and trying to think about the world and sharing some of the ideas with some of my friends, particularly in the Game B space. And actually in Game B land, people are now using this language to a greater or lesser degree. And while, as you say, is it actually a a solid theory yet? No. But is it a useful rule of thumb or heuristic? I'd say yes. And I have a thought or two I'd like to run back by you and see what you think. In the thinking and conversations I've had, one of the thoughts is that state is relatively easy to modify. Give someone some LSD and you'll change their state, right? But the effect may not be very clear about what that change is and may not last long. A lot of the research done on psychedelics is that the biggest effect is about six months. On the other hand, for some people, the trip is sufficiently strong. It also impacts their depth. And then they will say that it had a, you know, a lifetime's worth of experience. But 
it's you know kind of a random weapon in some sense. Hard to say what the effect will be and how long it'll last. Hierarchical complexity is probably the most powerful single dimension of your model, but two things. One, it has, I think all the evidence shows so far, significant innate component, right? Mental horsepower is, you know, somewhere between 50 and 80% heritable, or at least the capability to develop that. Of course, it's very important to realize that the achieved cognitive complexity is a mixture of both innate and environment. If you have gene set X, but you're raised in a cave by a wolf, you're not going to develop a high level of hierarchical complexity. And, and here's the other one from terms of the levers on society, really it takes a lifetime of effort to move it up. And it's a slow, hard process. So that had brought me to think, and this is what I'd love to get your reaction to, that code is probably the most salient lever point because code affects the others, right? If you have the right code, you have a, a culture that engenders hierarchical complexity to the level people have the capability. If you have the right code, that means institutions, ways of treating each other that lead to greater state, greater state in some cases, will lead to greater depth. So I'm thinking that for those of us who are interested in what comes next and building a better world, putting a lot of our effort in code is useful. In fact, in our Game B world, some of our foundational documents were written by a guy named Jordan Hall, collaborator of mine, and he has put them in a collection called Deep Code that you can find on Medium. Just type in Jordan Hall Deep Code and you'll get there. I guess one final thought before I get your reaction. When I tried to really think abstractly about what the Nordic ideology book is, one could say it's a code book, essentially, but a code book that provides routines in the code to affect the other three states. So with that, I'll let you react. Well, so, so first of all, uh, bingo. Uh, I, I very much agree. Um, and, um, and I mean, there are a bunch of things uh, to, to, to say about this, but yes, that's why I'm a writer. Uh, I mean, uh, when I was younger, I was very interested in meditation, still am. But I, I think like, well, whatever I can do or achieve uh, as a singular human being in that regard is just not scalable and transferable uh, to the same degree. So that's, uh, I mean, for this reason, I didn't pursue um, a life of more pure spirituality. You can practice uh, complex thought, uh, and uh, they, it can be leveraged. So, so, so when when you look at MHC, uh, people keep coming back to me about this, and <laughs> I, I, I uh, appreciate that you uh, that you bring the realist perspective here, which is my perspective also. People are tenacious about this that they really, really want us to uh, to they really want MHC to be. Uh, movable and learnable, the cognitive complexity, the stage of cognitive complexity of a person. And they want to shake up their friends and or or climb, or we ourselves climb in, in cognitive complexity. And sure enough, these things do happen. I mean, the 15 stages, but depending on how you count, you could count up to 17 stages even. And everybody passes through these stages and, and everybody passes at least to stage, I mean, a normal adult will pay a pass to stage 9, 10, 11, or 12. Uh, so that's, that's, I mean, that's plenty. So, uh, so this happened 12 times already in somebody's life since you were a fetus, um, so, which is quite interesting, right? 
so so it, it, in one way it's apparently the most movable one but once you have an adult human being here and now and you sit down with them what are you going to do like to change the complexity of somebody's thinking this is how radical it is you will have to i mean the the the, the demand would be you'd have to get them to start inventing patterns of thoughts according to more complex patterns, which their brain has thus far never formed in their life. So, I mean, you don't just do that over 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 the dinner table, right? You can affect perhaps their whole environment over a long time with exposure and with practice and with scaffolding, meaning uh, help from other people and, and repetition, then perhaps these things can be shifted. And these things align with stuff they, they find in the brain. If you study uh, the, the, uh, the, the abstract algebra of people's patterns in their brains, you can see that they actually, that thoughts go up to 11 dimensions. And uh, this may actually uh, mirror a lot of what it means to, uh, to have patterns of different uh, stages of complexity, that more parts of your brain work together and then you kind of see something more abstract than you can, than you can name. And our language often stops working after a while. But all the sciences do point in the direction of higher complexity. So you can climb this, but it's hard is really, really hard to do something with an actual person. What is very actionable, like you said, again, I can't say it better myself, is the code system, meaning that given that there is a large subpopulation of high complexity, high state, relatively high state, and uh, and higher depth than usual, than uh, the norm, then these people can be armed with... Um, or equipped or cultivate um, a higher stage of complexity in terms of their code, meaning that the, the base suppositions about reality, about society, about uh, where we're going, about our own place in it, about how we define ourselves, about how we define relationships, all of these things can change relatively easily. All you need to do is to get and grok some new ideas and then you can start using them. That being said, um, those ideas are only really usable to that sub-portion of the population which have the corresponding complexity. So we're left with a challenge to develop all of these dimensions uh, because just ideas, just code with, with n- no brains to run them, no hearts to fill it, and so on is, uh, of course, meaningless. So that's, that's one one reaction. The other reaction that I have is uh, the metamodernist wars, the uh, culture wars, or the metamodernist version of culture wars, which we have. And people will will have noticed one of these uh, four dimensions as fundamental to life. So some people will have noticed state. And they'll say, whoa, if people could only understand the power of Zen, Vipassana, um, some other profound practice or or a psychedelic perhaps experience and so on uh, and and maybe a training program and and uh, some some health stuff things that help your sleep and they then they notice how awake you feel how alive you feel 
and they say, okay, here's here's the answer on all the rest is bullshit. Other people will go to all of these group dynamic uh, uh, workshops and then they'll work on their traumas and masculinities and they'll get in touch with their deepest emotions and they'll uh, be brave and cry about uh, childhood stuff that happened to them and get their insecurities out in the open and own that stuff. And then they'll feel stronger, more integrated and they will see that, whoa, this is shit. Uh, and all the, um, like, you can pour how many words or uh, intellectual ideas, but this is how you really change a person. And then they're also right. And some people will notice, hey, people are looking at the world flat, and I see spheres, and they're seeing circles. And uh, we should get people to be more complex. We should get people to think in more multidimensional ways. And we should get people to grok more abstract realities so that people can together resonate on more wicked and abstract topics, uh, which require us to grasp topologies and, 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 and fractals and, and all the rest of it, which our brains are actually capable of. And those will emphasize growth in cognitive complexity. And then there's the code people who will have one or two or three or five favorite ideas and philosophies. And they maybe they will be in love with process philosophy. Maybe they will be in love with complexity theory or something else, right? And they say, if people only understood this. So what we have here is like... I believe we should see this multidimensionality and we should see that code is, in fact, the greatest leverage point. But of course, in the, in the long run, all four are, are equal and the people who people should stop fighting about this stuff and, and see that we're, we got different parts of the elephant. Yep. And then think about code as a way to help upregulate the other three. And of course, vice versa. So yeah. All right, let's move on a little bit. Let's get into the book itself a little bit. One of the things I 100% agree with, and this is a battle I've been fighting since I was 20, since I was 11, actually, and had a epiphany about reality. You say it is what we haven't woken up to, however, is the fact that we can change the societal barriers and social psychological landscapes of everyday life. You know, I, I pound the table all the time, says all this stuff that we don't like, we can change it, right? Turns out one of the areas I've done a lot of work on is monetary theory and alternative monetary systems. And, and it drives me crazy that people have reified the concept of money and they confuse money with wealth, for instance, right? And they think that fractional reserve banking mediated by central bankers was somehow brought down from Mount Sinai by Moses. And yet the reality is it's a series of frozen accidents and conscious design decisions that have given us a specific set of social institutions, norms, and beliefs. But all those things can be changed. And I took that as the deepest theme of your book, actually. The, the particular section which you which you name uh, it has to do with uh, with this shift from from seeing that we can change the natural world to seeing that we can change the uh, the social world and in a way it sounds it sounds obvious but it, but it really isn't um, that before the na natural sciences made this great entrance into reality into our our shared view of reality, we had no idea. I, I mentioned Roger Bacon earlier that some few people could see like, okay, if you really understand the nature of reality, the physical nature of things, you can make things do stuff 
that you couldn't imagine. You can make carts run without horses and so on. Today, then, we, we run into these barriers of, of, uh, of the natural world, uh, the environmental barriers and, and the climate change and all the rest of it. And, and then we're together waking up to, okay, we have environmental systemic barriers that are going to stop us from thriving and, and continuing. At the same time, there's no reason to believe those barriers are only environmental. They are just as much cognitive, mental. Uh, well, they have to do with, with the uh, deep code of society and, and the culture we live in. So the shift, and if modern society was the society which could see nature and then according to its cultural code, change nature until poof, this happens. And here I am in a house where everything is produced from places around the world and it's plastic and it's concrete and it's wood um, and, uh, and silicon for that matter. And all of these things put together according to some, some principle uh, that, that run our societies. Well, the next step would be to see those principles of our societies and make them visible and start taking them as an object of change, as an object of awareness. So that would be a core definition of a meta-modern society, a society that goes beyond and looks through modern society and in which the, the if modern society before used to be a box taken for, for granted. Now we can look inside the box and we can see all of its constituent elements. We can see uh, how its norms are formed, how, how uh, people's selves uh, develop, sense of self develop, how psychologies develop, how interactions are shaped through uh, everything from architecture to uh, to uh, interior design, to institutions, to language, and so on. And we start reworking nature. So this becomes kind of like one of those strange loop things. Yeah, we're changing the code that modifies ourself, which we use to modify our code, right? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and it's high time we do it. I mean, uh, so, so Douglas Hofstadter wrote this, I am a strange loop. And society, in this sense, must become a strange loop that we, uh, we have to be able to see the code that we ourselves are going to run on. So yes, I am a robot. No, I have no free will, or maybe I do in some philosophical deep last instance, but I am going to follow the structures of language and grammar given to, handed to me by all the rest of y'all. I'm just going to do so. I, and if I try to do something else, then even then, I will be structured uh, by by my environment. So let's uh, let's grasp that deep environment and and restructure it. And that's a humongous task. I mean, it's it's, it's tremendous in its immensity. How how do we even start doing so? And just to say something about how important it is that we start evolving in that direction now. And this speaks to another, another contemporary author, uh, Max Tegmark, this, uh, this futurist and, and, uh, and physicist. He writes in, in Life 3.0 that, okay, now we're reaching the point where we're actually going to design intelligent computers uh, as one part AI. You're, you're into that a lot. Um, but also we can redesign biological life. So these things taken together, we're going to, right now, we are going to remake biology itself according to our cultural code. So the, the potential for creating suffering 
is immense. So unless the cultural code itself becomes self-aware and starts operating and upon itself in a feedback cycle, improving upon itself, not least to to you know get more complex ethics to to update its uh, the code it runs on to to have greater depth in its compassion to operate from higher states of playfulness and so on then we can create suffering as it has never been seen before so these are very 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 serious matters um at this particular historical, or I suppose you could even say trans-historical time, because we, we're kind of jumping off one one axis of historical development and and uh, going in a completely other direction. That it's we're we're entering some kind of post-human history, which is isn't necessarily continuous with uh, with the history of humanity as we have conventionally thought about it. And I would add another endorsement for Life 3.0, a truly mind-expanding book by Max Tegmark, well worth reading. Let me propose sort of the classic argument against, you know, this idea that we have to intelligently develop our social operating system. The classic kickback, and I, I hear it all the time when I talk about these things and when we talk about Game B, is, oh, isn't that social engineering? And, you know, what kind of hubris is that to think that we should consciously engineer our society? I should also add those people who I disagree with, I'm not endorsing this view, but I hear it all the time. And didn't social engineering, the idea that we can do better, lead us to nightmares like Nazism and Marxist-Leninism? Right. Uh, so, uh, uh, first of all, it's it's, it's correct. Uh, social engineering is dangerous, uh, but that something is dangerous just means that it's uh, powerful, and then you have to do it right. Uh, so, uh, if if social engineering brought us Marxism and Leninism, it also brought us the U.S. Constitution and uh, and the basis of democracy and the uh, tripartite division of powers. People came up with this stuff. Uh, Montesquieu came up with it uh, quite specifically. And and some people uh, work then to uh, institute these things uh, as as technologies, as, uh, as engineered devices. So there is always and has always been an interplay between chance and what we cannot control and the stuff we we can control and can and should try to uh, and then the 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 right balance is difficult to know but you have to then explore what the right balance is the the neoliberal idea uh, would be that the markets spontaneously organize and then the state uh, is uh, well basically control freak um, mechanism by which human beings steer and 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 control and and suffocate human creativity and and so on. But it doesn't actually make sense. Why would agency, when controlled through the state, be inherently oppressive? And why would markets then be inherent and on all the human agency that happens through them be inherently self-organizational? Obviously, both things can be both oppressive and self-organizational. And no states exist without uh, corresponding markets and no markets actually exist without corresponding states. The same goes for the third dimension of civil society, uh, such as you and me having this discussion without it actually being either a market or a state-defined relationship in any way. So, um, I mean, these these three things develop together, um, and the the idea is so, and there is no real clear, really clear 
um, distinction between what is engineering and what is just participation and having an opinion and wanting to do something. So uh, the the reductio ad absurdum, I mean, if you if you take it to its extreme, the position I am against social engineering, it also means you can't clean your kitchen. Because, hey, who are you to say that the dustbin should be underneath the sink? And if you try to control it, then bad things are going to come out of it. Well, obviously, then if you're never going to control everything, anything, you, yeah, you can't, you literally can't get out of bed. Uh, so, so it's, it, it's not bad to have a natural want for power in the sense, uh, power uh, as creativity, as participation, as uh, freedom. And my freedom doesn't really stop at my outer border and begin at your outer border. It's actually, I'm, I become more free if you scaffold me by playing interesting things back to me, right? Uh, or by by resonating with me and so on. It's it's actually a, a zero, it, it's, it's not a real question, uh, the thing about social engineering or not. Uh, it's a real concern. And the concern would be, if we can specify what I think people really mean, do you think that you as an elite should force your opinion on others if you know it better through the monopoly of violence of the state, for instance? And then the answer is going to be, no, most of the time, and sometimes yes. In extreme cases, for instance, on uh, let's say criminality, it makes sense for us to you to have monopolies of violence. But in most cases, we should go as liberal and lenient as possible. Yes, it makes sense to put mm, Ravik, the terrorist who shot uh, shot up a hundred people, in jail against his will. It makes sense, and then we should do it by police force. Um, but, uh, well, and then if, if we want to really, really kill the anti-social engineering argument, uh, the, the, the last and final one is, well, okay, we currently have schooling and schooling uh, includes basically brainwashing people into a certain language and worldview for 12 years. And if you are against any kind of discussion about that in the name of being against engineering, then you're actually closing down one of the most important democratic discussions that we could possibly have. So you're closing down freedom. You're not opening up for it. It's rather by saying that, oh, we are being brainwashed by this society that we are in. Either way, why don't we make that into democratically owned self-organizing process, which is made as conscious as possible and uh, not steered by unconscious processes and manipulations and power relations. That's that's the answer, really. And I, and I would agree. And I would add one caveat, which is I think it's really important for those of us who are engaging in something like social engineering to understand the epistemological limits of complex systems. The whole idea of emergence, which I think you and I would both agree, in fact, you use the term in your book, we're looking to cultivate better emergences in complex system called society. And one of the things paradoxically we know about emergences is they're essentially impossible to predict from previous state, though that might be a little overstated. And so I'd suggest that one should think about the warning about social engineering to mean thinking that you can predict more than you really can about the unfolding of a complex system and be sure that you're always thinking about interventions to steer the system towards what we think to be a better place as a series of probes and tests that have to be empirically verified and with an experimental mindset. 
And then the other one, which I'm trying to introduce into game B, for whatever reason, some people don't like the term, is rather than to compel people to move to a new system, we should seduce them to move to a new system. The idea struck me when I was thinking about the collapse of Marxist-Leninism in Eastern Europe. You know, the reason they all wanted to get the hell out to say the East Germans and the Poles and the Hungarians was they were seduced by the fact that they were receiving TV and radio broadcasts from the West. And they saw, gosh, you know, our country is gray and grim and full of spies and very few fun and interesting things. And these other people seem like they're having a whole lot more fun. So literally, the Germans and the Poles and the Hungarians were seduced to adopt the liberal democratic market-driven state away from Marxist-Leninism. And if we have the epistemological modesty of complex systems and the idea that people should be seduced rather than compelled, we can avoid some of the dangers of social engineering. Yes, uh, I, I agreed. And whenever uh, compelling by force is necessary, then we can be pretty sure we're working against the attractor points. Yes. A good example would be the kulaks in, 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 in the Soviet Union. So they thought, aha, the future of society is probably collective, uh, collective big collective farms, uh, uh, which are then uh, owned by at an abstract level by the state and so on. Uh, and then why do these uh, middle class farmers don't want this? Uh, we have to force them. And then they end up killing a lot of kulaks and, and sending them to gulag and, and so on. And of course, if you have to do that, then probably the behavioral forces are not working in your directions and you should try to work with the behavioral forces, right? Whereas uh, if, if you look at some kind of future uh, post-capitalist system would have to outcompete capitalism on its own terms. Yep, and I love that fact from your book. And again, it's very much game B that if we're really doing this right, we should be able to outcompete and then seduce people away from the status quo if that's what we want to do. Another major theme, at least what I took to be a major theme, maybe the second biggest major theme of your book. This is a quote from the book. The emotional well-being of people is just as important as their economic welfare. This would be a society where depression, stress, and alienation have become political issues in the same vein as security, jobs, and housing are today. Yes. Uh, so uh, that's an important theme that it's not that we can just make one topic in politics and we would cover all of those issues because they're not, I mean, the more complex and the more intimate issues we we grapple with, and I guess we'll get there later in the interview when we talk about these six dimensions of, of um, uh, politics, I, I suggest. Um, the, the, the difficulty, the reason we don't already have these as political topics is that they are inherently difficult. Uh, they're inherently difficult. They're inherently multidimensional, inherently relational, contextual, uh, hard to see, hard to grasp, even for the individual. Like uh, sometimes, you know, you find yourself in life and you ask yourself, am I happy? Does th is, this, is this working out? And during the same day, you can have wildly different interpretations. Well, there's that nagging doubt. And actually, I've always known that. And then you can see a bit later, no, actually, these things work out in this way. And it's all being part of a bigger narrative where I'm going to in this direction and I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm happy. 
I, I mean, the more subtle stuff we, we pick up on, the more difficult it is to make a shared commitment to describing it, to uh, do something about it. Uh, but it's still the most, that subtle stuff that goes on on, on the inside of it, each of us is still what makes life worth living and still what life is ultimately about. It's not about a dollar baseline or, or an unemployment rate or something else. It's about what it is to be alive and what it feels like and what where we find meaning, if we have love, uh, if we're uh, happy, if we sleep well, if there is beauty in our lives, all of that stuff. So how can we somehow rein those things into collective consciousness and then make sure that, I mean, we can't control them. Hey, life happens, like you said, and we, you, can't, you, can't, uh, you can't order somebody to be happy or give them a friend uh, by, the, by means of the welfare state or whatever. But you can create generative conditions. You can create good soil and bad soil. You can sow good seeds and bad seeds, right? Uh, and there are likelihoods here uh, which are empirically knowable. And, and the likelihoods might be complex. So you do, let's say, uh, let's say we do intervention A, and it creates these 20 great uh, consequences, only they're just visible after 10 years, plus they create three really bad consequences, which are visible already after three years, for instance. I mean, th there are many such difficult things to measure or see, but the fact that they're difficult to measure or see that they're more in a sense qualitative, I'm, I'm doing quotation marks here around qualitative, that they're more qualitative doesn't make them any less real or any less important. Rather, of course, and everybody knows this, I suppose, those subtle things are the most important things. And somehow then we are basing our whole economic and political system on things that are, I mean, quite obviously not the most important things in life. So it doesn't make sense. Very good extension. And, you know, we, you and I have talked about the facts. I'm a pretty hardcore scientific realist, but I've also studied enough cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience to know that the subjective is not only real, but it's more real than anything else to us ourselves, right? And so it is odd that, you know, we have somehow in at least modern society drawn a band around the subjective state and said it's not the government's business, basically, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon sphere. I mean, again, when I talk about these ideas to, you know, uh, working class rural Americans, they say, what kind of commie shit is that, right? But in reality, it's the most real thing to us. Are we happy in and of ourselves? Are we suffering? Do we feel rich in our relationships, etc.? And, you know, I agree with you that it seems a natural next step for what a social operating system is. Getting a little short on time here. Let's move along a little bit to sort of how we do this and some of the important ideas. One of the important ideas, which I resonated with strongly, is your concept of attractor points and that winning the game is getting the attractor points right. Could you talk about that a little? Yes, so um, the attractor points, well, it, it's, it's from complex systems, right? If you study the many different states a system can, can enter into, and you know this better than I, there tend to be certain very likely outcomes that after you've done many enough iterations, then it tends to stabilize around a certain, around a certain point. Uh, and, and that certain point tends to, 
be describable and have certain space or certain properties in, in this in the larger system. So um, an example would be for societal systems, there appear to be such things as chiefdoms. This is described very well in Robert Wright's writing or in uh, Francis Fukuyama's writings or uh, Elman Service, the, the, um, the anthropologist. And they describe that once societies have a certain level of abundance, it doesn't necessarily have to have agriculture. It can be horticultural and, and uh, just a rich uh, hunter-gatherer society, such as the Northwest of, uh, of uh, pre-Columbian uh, America. They tend to um, stabilize around something called chiefdoms, namely that many villages will have one and the same chief. And that chief will be very, very adored, uh, and they will also exploit people, and they will be very looked up to. Some kind of authoritarian relationship shows up. And the you can see this around the globe, then. You can see it in Latin America, you can see it in Papua New Guinea, you can see it across the Pacific Ocean and, and uh, Polynesia. You can see it in the Germanic tribes encountered by Julius Caesar when he went there. You can see it in the Middle East, you can see it in um, archaeological evidence from China before before its kingdoms and so on. So if this same structure or a, a corresponding structure shows up in so many places in so many different times, but under corresponding circumstances, yes, this is an attractor point. And in that sense, it do, it, that doesn't say that teleologically reality or God wants us to evolve in this direction or something like that. It just says that, hey, given these these settings and given enough time and given this dynamics ongoing, this is highly likely to occur, but it might also not occur. Something, something else can happen. Uh, you can get hit by a comet or whatever, and then it doesn't happen. I hold then that attractor points are real also in our time and in our society. Another simple example, somebody invented electricity and light bulbs a while ago. And today, the whole world, or the whole human world, with some few small exceptions, is electrified. And uh, it has electric light. And why is that? Well, because it was an attractor point that once this existed, it wouldn't roll back. It wouldn't cease to, uh, to exist or appear. And likewise, the internet is a strong attractor point um, and, and the proliferation and importance of the internet. And today, the average person spends a good spite of seven hours in online interactions of different kinds. And that's an incredibly strong attractor point. So knowing such points in directionalities, well, that doesn't let us predict the future. I mean, it doesn't make us into mediums, uh, but it helps. It helps to see, uh, to at least rule out some ways of thinking and, and acting in the world. And it makes us more open to other ways of thinking and acting in the world. So my, my suggestion is that people should try to train our ability of uh, a basic futurism or basic futurology and try to see highly likely attractor points 
not wishful thinking or utopias or scenarios that we wish or, or dystopia scenarios, but just things that are likely to happen. And if you see those attractor points relatively well and you see how they are qualitatively different from the society of today, then when you maneuver through life, through business, through the arts, through uh, academia and research, through administration, organization, uh, and politics, of course, then on average and over time, you will end up in a better place in the labyrinth because you'll have hints of where to go. Take a left or right, take a left or a right, go straight forward. And if you have those hints, those North Stars, then more people on average will walk in unison or in parallel or in, in alignment towards some kind of shared common goal. And that shared common goal, in my mind, would be a, what I call a more meta-modern society even. Yeah. Could you get explicit about maybe what some of these attractor points might be or what a system of attractor points, what comes next? You know, in our game B world, we often talk about basins of attraction, which are multiple dimensions of attractors operating to produce a coherent container, which is a dynamic social operating system. You know, maybe some ideas you have about what metamodernism and its attractor points look like. For me, this is a, a somewhat of a prequel to, to the main argument. So I haven't, I'm not really a futurologist myself. Just naming a few then, uh, that, uh, that I do feel are, are relevant. They have to do uh, a lot with technology, with the environment, and with uh, political and social structures and cultural expressions. One being, as we have mentioned, proliferation of intelligent machines and designed biology. Because the drives to achieve these things and the rewards are so vast, even if our more utopian friends or uh, the techno-optimists or, or even according to the more pessimistic and realistic forecasts, somehow this is going to absolutely change the labor market, all of our uh, relationships, the nature of work, the nature of what it means to be human, the redistribution systems the distribution of goods and services, uh, the the skills needed, uh, the scaffolding for each person, all of these things are going to change uh, according to some kind of um, matrix of automation. So that's one attractor point. Another attractor point is there is going to be more and more data um, gathered about each of us and our consumer behavior and all other forms of behavior. And there will be stronger and stronger predictive algorithms, which there will be power struggles to control. Um, Another one is the environment will go more and more to bits and uh, and, uh, cause us more and more trouble. And uh, another one is in developed democracies after some ifs and buts with populist uh, uprisings and reactions, people will want co-developmental politics, meaning uh, politics of uh, deeper democracy because the, uh, the fundamental party political system and representative democracy system was based on the classes, uh, representation of the class interests of industrial society. Those classes do no longer exist in that same form or sense. And for this reason, people are going to create different political uh, ideas and ideals and, and uh, collaborations. Another one is as globalization occurs, even with the 
considerable dent due to Corona crisis, due to the trade wars and Donald Trump and all the rest of it. As as globalization nevertheless uh, does occur, even uh, then the pyramids of uh, wealth distribution of societies around the world uh, will break down and they will form one big pyramid. Sometimes the left and the right talk past each other here that the right say, well, we live in a fairer and, and a freer world, right? And the, the libertarian right. And the, the left, uh, they say, no, inequality has been growing in the USA and in, even in Sweden and so on. And of course, what's happening is that what used to be relatively equal, small pyramids, but were placed high up in the in the global ranking. Once you put everyone in the same economic system with no sealed containers, then everybody forms one big pyramid instead, or or one big Christmas tree to be exact. It's a good way to think about it. I'd like to make one other point about attractors, which is in complex systems, we talk about bifurcation points in a complex system space where there may be multiple attractors that one could fall into, but you don't necessarily fall into them all. And I think one of the biggest things about those of us thinking about steering the world towards a better form of what comes next is there are also some bad attractor points out there. If we look at history, feudalism, which I am now calling neo-feudalism as the extreme form of libertarianism, is certainly an attractor. A neo-dark ages where religious fundamentalists somehow defeat us all and we fall back into a thousand years worth of superstition. Perhaps the most dangerous is neo-fascism and the Chinese model, kind of nationalism plus militarism plus high-tech dictatorship. I could see the world falling into that. So when we think about attractor points and we can think about these good attractors or the attractors that we think lead to a more beneficial what comes next, I think it's real important to realize that we're essentially fighting a strategic battle against the marble falling into one of these bad basins of attraction. Mm, yes. Um, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more, Jim. And uh, and you mentioned actually my favorite bad attractor. I mean, of course, there, there, there are... Uh, there, there are th- I, sp- I suppose there there's one good attractor point and there are two bad attractor points if you look at these collective basins. So one really bad attractor point uh, or attractor basin would be some kind of fragmentation of the world system. Basically, it, it falls apart. Uh, we fail to uphold the flows of good services and energy and information, and then we start dying and we start killing each other would be really bad. And I suppose that's the most sinister one, but almost as sinister in some ways more nightmarish is global dictatorship attractor point, uh, which um, uh, this this is an argument made by Yuval Harari, very, very well made, that capitalism could outcompete communism because it had decentralized decision making. Inadvertently, it also meant that democracy would, uh, in, in this sense, that that we know it today, the conventional liberal democracy, uh, could outcompete authoritarianism in that same age uh, because uh, it just decentralized all of those decisions and all the economic organization into all of those different businesses, which then competed and then 
each of them had the incentives to make the best decisions as if their businesses depended on upon it, as if their lives depended upon it. And then in the end, they, they processed more information, more sensitively and more productively, and they evolved better. Um, so that, so that the whole system as a whole was much more resilient and much more open to change and much more highly developmental and so on. So people coordinated their agency better. What Harari mentioned is that, well, what if uh, we're reaching the point today where you can actually gather enough data about people to control their agency and have enough algorithms that are advanced enough uh, that you can actually do that better from a centralized position, thinking more in the direction of China, but also some of the stuff that's been going on in Israel about surveillance and so on. We, we may very well be entering an informational environment or technological stage in which autocracy, an advanced form of digital autocracy, is actually more powerful, not necessarily at creating happy, dignified human lives, but just as at uh, coordinating human agency and controlling human beings than is a decentralized system. And uh, then incidentally, that would knock out any democratic, any free liberal order. Um, and uh, China, I, I, I concur that's the, that's the main threat to the world liberal order, not, not saying anything bad about the Chinese culture or, or talking down the, the great achievements of, of China's economy and civilization over the last decades. But as a political order uh, at this point, we're at a point in history where they are more and more challenging the world system of liberal information flows, meaning they have started to bully countries and uh, buy off governments and uh, in, in the UN, for instance, and capture journalists even outside of their own borders uh, if they are criticized, uh, which is unique uh, in, in, in our time that this happens. Yeah, we have to fight this one. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the third, the third uh, good basin would be well taking the good from both of these bad examples. So the we have fragmentation, but the good thing about fragmentation is okay, at least you're free. You're free to be miserable, but at least you're free. Um, and uh, the bad basin, uh, the authoritarian one, is that you're not free and you're miserable, but at least you're ordered. I mean, you're in that ordered. And safe setting. And you can imagine then that the metamodern world order would be one of deeper democracy, which still manages to coordinate us on a global level. So we'd be ordered and free, I suppose. That's a good way to think about it. Let's talk briefly about another, I thought, very important concept, which again, I've started to use and encouraged other people to use, which is as we think about tactics, how we actually go from where we are to where we want to be, you talk about the ideas of game acceptance, game denial, and game change. A little bit of detail on each of those would be great. Yes, sure. Uh, so roughly speaking, most people are stuck in either game denial or game acceptance. And game denial is all the idealistic people. And it's uh, most of all the sin of, uh, of, the, of the left, I suppose. And uh, game denial is basically that you want to somehow there's a utopian impulse that you want to remove unfairness and reality. 
And then you try to move towards a place where competition would be abolished, where people would just be kind. And uh, actually, I see some of this even in in uh, game B formulations. I uh, I get a bit of game denial vibes when they say we want to move into a non-rivalrous game or a, a non-competitive game B. Uh, and, and that we're currently in a rivalrous game or rivalrous civilization. And that includes a number of logical impossibilities. I mean, uh, things can't be several things at once, maybe at a quantum level. Uh, but for instance, any time there is a relationship, there is also a power relationship. And that power relationship is always dependent on some kind of uh, properties or strengths of the involved, even even down to you know parent child stuff, or or uh, lovers or partners, or um, certainly humans and animals, it, it just goes it just goes through all of it. So so it's difficult to to reach that point, uh, that ultimate point of no competition. And for this reason, that's not necessarily the best goal. And what happens is in in great. Practical. This has very practical implications. If you look at the left parties around Europe, uh, you don't have these in the in the U.S. Uh, but you have, I don't know, campus radicalism and and, and uh, left idealism of different kinds. If you look at these policies that they in all seriousness suggest and that they would implement if they were to given the reins of power of government in, in European countries, they would open the borders. They would lower uh, order and and uh, crime delinquency uh, justice system stuff and they would raise the subsidies to uh, normal people and uh, and they would secure your jobs more and make it harder to kick people from from their work or uh, to sack people and they would uh, increase the environmental regulations and other regulations of companies. And what would happen in reality is not that a left utopia would emerge. Rather, uh, the countries would be swamped with immigration uh, would e- and immigrants would be paid a lot of uh, subsidy money. At the same time, this would cause great costs to uh, the tax system and businesses and businesses would dwindle and they would be outcompeted by foreign capital and uh, people would actually be stuck in in their jobs and not be sacked so that uh, the low uh, movement of labor would mean that you had a very high unemployment at the very same time so that the whole system would collapse in a matter of 10 years. That's what would actually happen if you did all of these idealist things. And that's game denial. You're denying that there there are games, that there are choices that have to be made, preferences, and so on, that there are priorities that have to be made. Moving from there to game acceptance, that's just the opposite. So a fascist will, uh, or, or a conservative, they will tend to think, well, life is tough. If it wasn't fair to you, tough shit your problem, you work it out. And then in the long run, it's going to be fair either way if everybody just plays the game and some people are going to be rich, others are going to be poor. And what they end up doing is conversely defending all sorts of injustices that actually are quite malleable and quite changeable and didn't necessarily have to be that way. And you can go back through history 
So conservatives were against universal suffrage. They were against the abolition of slavery. They were against well, pretty much anything reasonable and good that you can think of that was brought on by radical politics. In all of these steps, they would always argue that it's, it wouldn't be possible. It doesn't have to change. It's actually fair. They were arguing according to game acceptance. And that's what you have today as well. So game change, again, is, is the bastard child of these two things. She's kind of like a metamodern good bassin would be the bastard child of, of fragmentation and, and uh, authoritarianism or digital authoritarianism. Then you take the positive sides of both those things and you get where you want to go. So the positive side of, of game denial is that you refuse to accept injustices that are arbitrary and that can be changed. You say that, okay, the game that exists today is not good enough. It's not treating people well. It's not treating animals well. It's not justifiable. And if you look at the game acceptance part, you say, but the game is there. There is a game. There always has been. There always will be. So what's the conclusion? You work to learn the game, play it lovingly, understand its rules, and work to change it. You can change the rules of the game. And this has happened throughout history, so it can happen again. The, the lives that we live in modern, let's say, Sweden and the US is considerably different from, I don't know, what it might have been in Mamluk, Egypt in the 12th century. It would have been quite different. Uh, and the games of life uh, the stakes we played for, if we insulted the king back then or, or the sultan, we would um, literally be tortured and killed. So we we played on a different game board. And uh, society was ruled by a slave army. So you could actually only advance by, join, by being kidnapped as a young kid and then uh, advance by, by uh, battling. Where we, whereas we can advance by, uh, I don't know, uh, inventing something nice and starting an IT business, for instance. So the games are quite different, but they're still games. And there are still winners and losers, and there always will be. That's uh, wonderful. I, I found that an extraordinarily useful perspective. And I would encourage other people to, when they read the book, to get their head around those three things and try to keep your head in the game change space and not to fall into either of those other two basins. Now we're going to turn to the heart of the matter, at least to my mind, the heart of the matter with respect to how do we actually do this stuff? And that is what you called your master pattern, six parts of different kinds of politics that interoperate together and that you argue can, if executed well, move us towards a relative utopia. So I'd like you to start first briefly defining what you meant by relative utopia, and then take us through the six parts, and to the degree we have time, how they interoperate to move us towards a relative utopia. Right. So th thank you for asking. And I mean, I, I just recently came across this other term, protopia. Um, some somebody also suggested the, the word utopia with the EU, the good place, rather than utopia as in the nowhere place. But of course, it's a play on words. Back in Thomas More's uh, initial, initial formulation in the, in the 16th century, he wrote about utopia, which was a play on words with about it's the place that doesn't exist and the good place. Protopia then uh, is another term for 
it's not then a utopian static vision about what society can and should be like, and then everybody will be happy. Rather, it's a relative place which is obviously preferable for most people than the current state of affairs. So protopia is just somewhere you want to move, but which is still qualitatively different from where we're at today. And that's also what I mean with with the relative utopia uh, vision. There are, there are a bunch of different authors today uh, who, have, who have brought up visions of relative utopia. There's this uh, Dutch historian um, who wrote, it's called Utopia for Realists, right? The, the, his book. And it's about uh, basic income and open borders. I don't believe actually his, his program uh, or, or the argument made in his book, but he's playing around with the very fact that from the perspective of 200 years ago, what we're experiencing today is a utopia in many ways. Of course, not everybody's happy and there are all sorts of horrible things. But just if you if you take the, the average experience of everyday life and ex- of, of a middle class person today versus a, a farmer in the, in the early uh, 1800s, then the difference is just unimaginable. And, it do, and if we, we describe what we had for dinner and uh, uh, which parts of the world we've been to and what kind of privileges we have and so on, it would sound utopian. And in that sense, we're in a relative utopia, when a, a utopia that would seem utopian to the farmer of 200 years ago. Now, if that has happened again and again throughout history, that we have created relative utopias, and particularly now in, with the advent of modernity, would it be so strange if in 200 years, society will look like a relative utopia to us and that it would be qualitatively different in ways that we almost can't imagine? That's, that's the argument, that if, that if, that's, if that is what has consistently happened many times through history already, wouldn't we be fooling ourselves of saying, okay, we're not going to talk about utopian visions because they only lead us to gulag when we know that is what has happened, relative utopia at least. So how do we do it? Let's talk about the master pattern and the six kinds of politics that we need to master. Oh, yeah. So so that's the biggest part of the book. And then the, the biggest part of the argument, I suppose, um, the, the first part uh, is to see that politics and what we mean by the word politics changes over time. So um, all of the basics were there already in the Sumerian civilization, for instance, that, uh, well, you would have um, you would have a minister of war, you would have a minister of, uh, of taxes, you would have a minister of education. And, uh, and then, of course, somebody would be something like a prime minister. And then, of course, in, in the Sumerian society, you had, a, you had a king or a god king, something like that. Throughout the development of more and more complex societies, more roles have been taken up by society. So, I mean, in Babylon, you had uh, the organization of uh, municipal brothels, for instance. Um, And whereas uh, in Rome, you had, uh, well, you had all of the the building of aqueducts and and all sorts of of public things that had to do with with the Colosseums and the amphitheaters and... uh, Many different things that that evolve over time, which the public realm take up something 
and and begin to develop techniques and experiences, shared experiences for dealing with something that formally wasn't viewed as part of politics. Mm, and this is difficult and it's controversial because it's, I mean, how far should politics expand? It's not, it's, and, and how far can, can it realistically expand? What we see though, is that there is a direction of a developmental direction here. And it's not necessarily in the direction of more control of every each and every individual, but it is in the direction of somehow organizing and coordinating on more and more domains of life. The last large example uh, of such a major shift is um, probably environmental politics. So um, back in the 1800s, U.S. government uh, created something like a Ministry of Forestry and and, uh, and not, it wasn't called the Environmental Ministry at that point. But from not 100 years after that, almost all countries had some kind of environmental ministry or department uh, dealing with environmental issues. Now, what we have seen a tendency towards, and it's very tentative and it's very, it just flickers past here and there. There is a minister of loneliness in the UK. There was a minister of the future in in, uh, Sweden. There was a minister of happiness in some country, I keep forgetting which one, Bhutan. Well, perhaps in Bhutan. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, so in Bhutan, of course, there's the GDP, there's the gross national happiness thing and, and all of that stuff. Uh, maybe there's also minister of happiness there. But there, a minister of yoga in, in current, uh, current India, perhaps not uh, the most progressive in the world. But if you take these different, um, they, they point... Uh, these t- different tendencies, they point towards somehow that politics it wants to deal with issues of mental health, of personal development, of rela- human relationships, of inner dimensions, uh, which we talked about earlier in this interview, right? And as we also mentioned, these things are difficult to grasp. These things are difficult to corner and clearly get our hands on as objects, and for this reason, uh, we may need several forms of new politics which balance each other out and take different dimensions of what it means to organize as human beings in societies and what it means to be a human being in the first place. And let these evolve together so that they, they, can, they can triangulate or with more angles than three, really, uh, these more complex and subtle issues of life and somehow make put them at the heart and center of how we organize our societies. So uh, to, to mention uh, some of these forms of politics, which uh, I suggest, uh, one would be existential politics, meaning uh, politics of um, looking into how meaningful people find their lives and uh, how uh, purpose-driven people's lives are and how free we really feel on the inside, whether or not we have struggled with issues of death and uh, anxiety and so on, and see if, well, what can possibly be done here in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, in terms of preventive measures. It's an important issue. Like, how are people feeling really 
feeling deep down, like, are we living our lives to the fullest or to, to uh, the, the best possible extent that we can? And somehow that issue never shows up in politics because it's uh, thought of as part of the personal realm and the private realm. But quite obviously, it depends upon other people and depends upon the social structures that we are part of. So it should be perhaps made into a conscious and explicit form of politics, which would include its own censuses, its own methods of scientific uh, surveying and so on. But that's just that's just one, one side of this. Another side w- would be the relationships to one another and ethnic relationships, familial relationships, uh, uh, communi- local community relationships, uh, engagement in civic life, uh, identification with different groups, uh, relationships between different religions in society, relationships between the genders. All of these things have to do with humans relating to one another, which in turn have to do with social skills, perspective taking, uh, the amount of tolerance and empathy that people feel or have the capacity to feel uh, what really ticks people off about different things. And, well, these issues can quite obviously also be developed. And today we're seeing all sorts of fallout of relationships that don't work throughout society, but we have no real way of attending to those those issues. So the second one is what I call Gemeinschaft politics. And Gemeinschaft is a bit of a tricky word. Uh, so I, I picked the German word because there wasn't an exact corresponding one in, in uh, English. Gemeinschaft means something like community or relationship or fellowship in, in the abstract sense. Our togetherness, I suppose you could say. Uh, and somehow togetherness can be have higher or lower quality, and it can be uh, more pervasive or less pervasive. It can be uh, wrought with uh, with issues and conflicts and problems, or it can be more pure and and uh, and uh, resonate in a more harmonic manner. So this is a very 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 important source of happiness and misery in pretty much everybody's life. And right now we're more or less leaving it outside of uh, the budgeting of our self-organization as, as uh, political uh, units. So we're just leaving it up to chance, really, this most important part of what it means to be human. And again, it's not about then creating a welfare state where you can go to the, to the welfare office and get a friend. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about generative conditions or uh, whatever can nimbly and intelligently uh, be made in terms of interventions or preventive measures or equipping people with the right uh, skills and, and the context and so on to get these things to work as well as possible. And then, of course, refine what we mean by good relationships throughout society. So those are two dimensions. Um, we're not going to go through, I suppose, all six in, in the same detail. But just to mention then a couple of things about the other ones. The other ones are uh, try to balance these out because both of these things, existence and what it what really feels like to be alive um, and relationships, they're, they're very personal matters, right? 
And the very personal matters here, uh, they uh, they need to be balanced. When, when they become political, they need to somehow be balanced out by issues that are um, that uh, by, by politics that protect us from more subtle forms of transgression in these areas. So uh, that's why we might need something like emancipation politics, like a politics which a kind of politics with its own uh, ministry and its own department, which pushes and perhaps its own parties, which pushes against these uh, these more integrative processes, these processes that have to do with uh, with meddling with people's lives, with uh, improving upon relationships and going deeper into the personal emancipation politics, politics of freedom, politics of uh, protecting the individual's rights would push against these other two. From there on, we might imagine a fourth uh, kind of politics, empirical politics, meaning that each of these things need to be formulated in ways that actually make sense and actually have intended effects. So society needs to become a lot more scientific than it currently is. Most of policy decision-making today is based quite loosely on science, and science can be expanded, and we can have much stronger knowledge about why we're doing things and how we're doing things. So that would be a fourth dimension, an empirical dimension, which then is in a way third-person reality or objective reality, pushing back against these things that come from the subjective realm. So we get to know the the intersubjective realm or the objective realm and try to validate these more subtle forms of politics. Um, Then this would bring us to a fifth one. Uh, All of this requires a deeper legitimacy, which requires a deepening of democracy. So the kind of democracy that we have today is relative representative and distant and and, uh, bureaucratic, if we are to enter into these more intimate realms of human development, we must also, in different ways, deepen the legitimacy and participation and humanization of the democratic system. And that is an ongoing process, which may require its own political impetus and perhaps its own political proponents and so on. And that should be an ongoing process, maybe that society should invest a lot in this issue, uh, improving upon its own uh, modes of governance. Maybe uh, a couple of percent of the GDP would go to perpetually try to improve and challenge how science governs itself, making it more transparent, more participatory, more intelligent in its decision-making and making its decisions more legitimate to the citizens, more felt as their own. Which brings us to the last form of politics. And that's where we started in this interview, I suppose, and a good place to, uh, to draw towards an end, is that the, the last form of politics, the sixth form, would be a politics of theory, meaning a politics of how we describe reality and how we brainwash ourselves as a society. We said that, I said early on, that a metamodern society is different from a modern society, and that a modern society changes nature according to its cultural uh, to its cultural code. But a metamodern society must be able to see its own cultural code and change also what it means to be human and how, how the interpretations 
that are in in its culture uh, affect our our everyday life and agency and that everyday life itself can be different including how we view reality and our place in it so this in itself should become a political issue of course balanced by all of the others you need a strong empirical pushback here you need democratic participation in these kinds of processes but the the fundamental issue about what stories about reality do people have and how can those be improved upon and bridged in the best possible way is a question that has immense importance even to our very survival as a, as a species and society and so on. So, uh, so it, we can't really avoid the issue. What, what reality, what sense of reality do we have? And that should be placed at the very heart of politics. This shouldn't be the first step in introducing a metamodern politics. But these six forms of politics together, they form a kind of master pattern that if you try to do one of them, it won't really work. If you try to do two of them, they might balance out a little bit. But if you do all six, there is a logic to it that makes makes them, hopefully, or as far as I can see, uh, balance out more. And they should also be viewed as some being more difficult uh, than others. So the politics of theory is, that, in a sense, the heaviest one, but also the most difficult one. It relies most upon the former ones. Well, very good. I should really thank you for a very nice in-depth explication of the ideas in this book. And I'll tell the listeners, we got to about half of my topics and questions. Once again, the book Nordic Ideology is incredible in its richness. And those of you out there in listener land who are interested in thinking deeply, seriously, and originally about what comes next, I strongly endorse you read Nordic Ideology. So, Hansi, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, and I'm going to invite you back for a third time to talk about some of the things we didn't talk about. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.